0: Are you the one? That's the name of my message or title of my message this morning. Are you the one? Are you the one? As we're starting to really focus on Christmas, I want to encourage each one of us because it's so easy to focus on all the peripheral things about Christmas. And not that any of them are bad things. It's great to focus on family. It's great to be generous and exchange gifts with the ones we love and care about. It's great to gather together and have that amazing food. Those things are all great. They're all blessings from God. But we need to always remind ourselves, and actually, I think in our culture especially, we almost have to make a determination in our own heart, in our own mind, that we're not going to lose our focus. The focus is on Jesus. God in the flesh coming to to earth. Are you the one? Are you the expected one? I want to read just three verses first as I start, and then I'm going to be putting quite a few scriptures on the on the screen this morning, more than I normally would. But mostly I want to do I want to do that this morning to give us the Old Testament verse and some corresponding New Testament verses. So I may not read all of the verses, but they'll most of them be up there. But I want to read these, starting in Matthew chapter 11, just at verse one, just three verses. Jesus' ministering has been taking place for a little while. He's been doing crazy things. He's healed lepers already. He's cast out demons. He's healed the blind. He had not had a guy come to him and said, My daughter's dead, but if you would just come and lay your hands on her, she'd come back to life. He had done all these things. And in the meantime, the man we call John the Baptist had been arrested and was in prison. And that is where these three verses come from right now. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? We need to realize that who's asking this question. This is John the Baptist. This is the guy who stood in the waters and baptized Jesus. Are you the one? He's the guy that as he's baptizing Jesus and after he baptizes Jesus, he hears a voice from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he's asking the question, are you the one? Or should we look for another? He's the same guy who saw the Holy Spirit descending as a dove and land upon Jesus. And he's still asking, are you the one? He was the one that jumped in his mother's womb 33 years or so, 30 years earlier in the presence of Mary when Jesus was in her womb. And he's asking this question. Are you the real deal or do we need to look somewhere else? He's been in prison, but he's been hearing from his disciples. This Jesus that you baptized, it's amazing what he's doing. His teaching is phenomenal. He teaches with wisdom and authority that no man ever does or has ever done before. He's truly laying hands on the sick and they're being healed. He's raised dead people back to life. He's made lepers clean and he's made blind eyes see. And he's heard all of this. And then he says, you know, you guys, would you just go double check for me? Go see if he is the real deal. Ask him. Ask him if he is the one we've been expecting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Or do we need to keep looking for someone else? Interesting question, isn't it? You know, I don't think it's an unreasonable question. <laughs> Even with a lot amount of evidence, I mean, there are still people today who just don't believe this. And there are some of us in here that if we really think about what we know to be the story of Christmas, and if we haven't really meditated on it, we really haven't devoured it and contemplated what it really means, we just kind of fell into this trap of, yeah, that's a neat Christmas story, and we see these nice little little manger scenes and all of this stuff, but we forget the significance of what we say we believe. We believe something, think about this for a few moments. We believe something absolutely crazy. It's no wonder the world thinks we're crazy. We believe that over 2,000 years ago something happened something that was supernatural, something that was totally out of the ordinary, and something that is totally unexplainable by human beings. And we believe it. We believe that God, the creator of all things, invaded Earth in the form of a baby. Now, as we listen to the story, we're familiar with the story. We go, yeah, that's neat. Just think if you've never heard this story before. You'd already be thinking, we're crazy. It had never, ever happened before, and it has never happened since, and it's never going to happen again in the same way. We believe that in this little village called Bethlehem, there was a little Jewish baby boy born, to a very tired and exhausted young Jewish mother, and to a very concerned and probably fearful Jewish young man, and we believe he's God. He's God. That's what we believe. Not only, do, really, that's what we stake our eternal life on. That's what we stake. That we we put the stake in the ground and say, "That's it. We better be right." We better have settled it in our heart once and for all. But you know what? Even when we read the Bible stories, we'll discover that many of the people, the Jewish people, who had been reading these prophecies and studying these prophecies for hundreds of years, literally going back to Genesis, all the way through the prophets, they had been seeing these prophecies about the coming Messiah. And when he came, they weren't ready for him. And some of them just flat out didn't believe who he was some of those killed him and there's still people today who aren't sure who he is they're not ready to receive him as the messiah and there are those who have heard about it and know about him and just totally reject him he couldn't be it's too crazy the story is too too crazy jesus are you the one are you really the son of god or as john said Are you the expected one, or do we need to look for another? Those of you that know me well know that I love the evidence. I'm not one that likes or thinks highly of blind faith. If that's what you've got, praise God. But I'm always worried that blind blind faith can become weak faith. I've been sharing a lot this week in conversations with people. What's happening in our culture just unnerves me. It just unnerves me that in our culture, Christians, supposedly Christians, are wavering in their faith. Churches are wavering in the Word of God. They're changing it. We're we're believing this lie about tolerance and love and letting the world redefine it, and we're falling away from our faith, the truth of the Word of God. We can't call sin, sin, even when it's obvious it's sin. That's why I think we need to look at evidence that our faith stands on something. So that anchor that we put in the ground on Jesus Christ as the Son of God, a baby who was born in a major, our faith will not waver. And that this is the Word of God, and it does not change. It will not waver. Sin is sin, and the forgiveness that's available for all of it is through Jesus Christ's blood and His death resurrection. That's what we need to believe. That's what we need to stand on. And the world's going to challenge us. They're challenging us. It just makes me sick. When I listen to the news and I read about Christian people that are just wavering and and they're really spouting lies. And you and I and our children and our grandchildren are going to be challenged to stand our faith and stand their ground because it's getting harder and harder and harder to stand your faith. So what I want to do this morning is look at some evidence. Now I could look at scientific evidence. Believe me, it's out there that Jesus is who he says he is archaeological evidence, there's more of it every day. Don't believe these people out there that have degrees and a whole bunch of little letters after their name who's saying it's all make-believe. they got their head in the sand. They will not look. Their bias is so strong. Their deception is so strong. They, they can't see the truth of facts. The historical evidence is overwhelming. Literary evidence is overwhelming. But what I want us to look at, the line that I'm going to look at just today is the prophetic evidence in the Word of God. Really, I, I don't see how, if anybody will look at this honestly, that they could have a sh- shed of doubt, a single thought of doubt about who Jesus is and what took place on what we call Christmas. So I'm going to look at some prophecies. Now, I don't know <clears throat> if you know all this, but theologians tell us there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Not all of them are direct prophecies. Some of them are a little bit indirect. But there's over 60 direct prophecies in the Old Testament. Direct prophecies, direct reference about the Messiah. Over 60. I'm just going to look at eight. And I'm going to look at them kind of quickly this morning, but I'm going to look at just eight prophecies that took place. First one, actually, it was a prophetic word spoken by a guy called God. That one carries some weight. In the book of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve had sinned and the serpent had deceived them, God comes into the garden and He starts talking to them and then He actually turns and talks to Satan and He prophesies directly to Satan and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the husband, you and the woman, excuse me, and between your offspring and hers, between your offspring and hers, that really resonated with me this week when I'm thinking of what the division in our culture. All followers of Satan and lies and deceptions, and all followers of Jesus Christ, there will be an enmity. It's part of what God prophesied. And he said, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now I don't know if you've ever bruised your heel, but it hurts. But it's better than being dead. In the picture here, in the scripture, the he is Jesus. And his heel will be bruised. And as ugly as the crucifixion was, that's a picture of the bruising of the heel. But it says he will crush Satan's head. Crushing your head is bad for your health. When we look at this, he prophesied one other thing in there, and this seems like a silly thing to us, probably. He said the Messiah is going to be born of a woman. Good news, right? Surprise? You know, God could have just showed up. He could have just showed up one day. You know, okay, son, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you six foot nine, 300 pounds of nothing but muscle. And I'm even going to send a white horse. He could have done anything. But he says it's coming of a woman. And we see later the significance of that because we know it's a virgin birth. But back in Genesis chapter 3, it was prophesied the Messiah was coming of a woman. In Matthew 1.18, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 4, it says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. The first prophecy I'm looking at today that was fulfilled in Jesus. Now, when you look at that as evidence, you could say, wow, born of a woman, that's, there's a lot of women. Even back in that day, there was probably a population of somewhere around 300,000 people on the earth or more. Half of them were women, could have been any of them. But we're going to see as we go through these prophecies, this evidence is going to come and it's just like a funnel. It's just going to get narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower narrower until it comes to only one option. The second prophecy, the Messiah will be a descendant of Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith, the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham. When Abraham was called by God to leave where he was living and go to somewhere, he didn't even know where. But in that, he received a word from the Lord. In Genesis 12, it talks about that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed by you, Abraham, and your family. Now, Abraham was approximately 75 years old then. And he's thinking, okay, family, that sounds nice. I haven't got any. And when he was 99, and Sarah would have been at 89 the way it looks, God did a miracle. And Sarah got pregnant, and she gave birth. And she gave birth to Isaac. And then came Jacob, and then came generation after generation after generation for almost 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years. Talk about waiting on the promises of God. If we wait 2,000 seconds, we really get impatient. 2,000 years. And in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, you don't have to read very far in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, It says this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, of all the women on the earth, the thing's narrowed now. The evidence is pointing more and more to somebody. We've eliminated a lot of families and a lot of people on the earth because it's got to be from the family lineage of this man named Abraham. The third prophecy, the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Now, some of us may not know all these names and know where they fit in, but there was a guy named Jacob who had 12 sons, and one of his sons was named Judah, and he's in the lineage of Abraham, of course, and he has a son, and when, when Abraham is going or excuse me, when Jacob is prophesying over all of his sons, he's prophesying over each one. And when he comes to Judah, in Genesis 49:10, he says these words, which were a little bit hard, maybe for us to look and say, "How is this a, a, a prophecy of the Messiah?" but it gets it's made clear to us in the New Testament. In Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of all of the nations is his. This prophecy here, Jacob is predicting that the Messiah, who has the scepter to rule and the authority to rule, is going to come from the family and the lineage of Judah. And now all of a sudden, we've been from woman, Abraham, Judah. It's getting narrower and narrower as we go. And one day, all the nations will honor him. In Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, it says this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will never end. And we can look also in Revelation 5. You may know the story there. The scene is when they're, in, they're in, in heaven and they're looking for someone to open the book of the seal and they're looking around and there was no one to open the book. And then one of the elders says these words, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. The lion of Judah. That's where that comes from. He's the Lion of Judah. He is going to come out of the lineage of one of Jacob's sons, Judah. And as you see clearly here, all of these things in the Old Testament, we need to remind ourselves, to you and I, we might go, "Ah, whatever. But to the Jewish people who were waiting hundreds of years for Messiah, they would know all this. They would know all of these prophecies. They would know all these words. And everything is pointing to their Messiah. But yet they missed him. The fourth prophecy I want to look at is he will be a descendant of David. And we've already seen that brought up in a couple scriptures. But in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, a prophet named Nathan comes to David. And as we're doing this, we're we're coming down generations from Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, and a whole bunch of them. And now we get finally down here to David. It's all getting closer. And the, the funneled. Pointing to who it is is getting narrower because there's less. Everybody's being eliminated if you're not in one of these lines. And he says to him in there in Second Samuel seven, "You'll never lack a descendant to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. There's always going to be someone from your lineage, your family." And in Jeremiah twenty three five, it clarifies this promise for us by stating a ruler will come who will be the righteous branch and a descendant of David. He will rule with wisdom and understanding. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, which we looked at already, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in Luke 1.32 and 33, which we've looked at, and he will reign over the house of Jacob is what we focused on here, but the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Prophecy, four prophecies, five prophecies. It goes on and on and on and on. These different prophecies about who he is going to be born of a woman, descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, descendant of David. And the next one I want to look at is, there will be one who is going to come and announce the arrival of the Messiah. And that's John the Baptist. Isaiah prophesied this, a prophet in the Old Testament named Isaiah. He prophesied these words 700 years before the birth of Christ. Most of these prophets, prophecies that came from prophets were like six, seven, eight hundred years ago. 700 years before the birth of Christ, he prophesied that there would be a forerunner who would announce the coming of the Messiah. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice of one calling, In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And in Malachi 3.1, it says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. The Old Testament prophets are saying there's going to be one. And he's going to come before the Messiah shows up. And he's going to be a forerunner. He's preparing the way. He's, and we know what he's doing. He's calling people to repentance for Jesus to come. In Mark chapter 1, verses 2-8, through 8, and I'm not reading all of it, but it says this in reference to the prophet Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you, and you will prepare your way. Verse 3, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. And verse 4, And so John came, and this was his message, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Quoting from the prophets of old, 700 years before. As a matter of fact, if you look in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist is being accused by religious leaders again, he says these words, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He declared it. You didn't have to wonder what the Old Testament prophecies meant. He declared it. That's who I am. The New Testament writers, the writers of the gospel, Paul, all the writers knew and understood what the Old Testament said. And really, we need to understand that all of the Jewish educated population would have known, and most of all of the Jewish population, because of their religious upbringing, would have known these things. And yet so many missed. John the Baptist narrows it down. The next one, he'll be born of a virgin. We've already referenced that, but that ought to narrow it down a little. The Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Now these words were spoken back in Old Testament times, to a king by the name of Ahaz. And they were spoken to him at a time when he was doubting God's promises for his people. Now, I doubt very much whether Ahaz understood this in terms of what we now understand it to mean. There are many of these prophecies that have a historical context of the given time and then are also uh, uh, really relevant to what we're talking about today. And this would be one. But we know in Matthew... We don't have to wonder what it meant anymore. In Matthew one twenty two and 23, it says, All of these things took place. And this was coming uh, from an angel. The one who was coming when Joseph was getting informed of what's taking place. The angel come and says, the, says these words. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't that amazing? Scripture after scripture after scripture. And we could turn this into a real marathon and go through all 300. But we're not going to do that. He nailed it down now to a specific virgin. There's going to be one woman somewhere. And then he goes further. And the next one I want to touch on is that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. you think of these things, and that's what I want you to think, the odds. What are the odds? Not only a virgin, a very specific virgin, but it's going to be born in a very specific little village. Not Jerusalem, the the home of the Jewish faith. Not to some royalty. Uh Uh-uh. It's going to be this little Jewish girl and this little Jewish young man. Young. That's who it is. And it's going to be in Bethlehem. Micah 5 2. You, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, notice the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, and some of the translations say from all eternity. That would narrow it down, wouldn't it? The funnel is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. There's only one place. And Micah gave this prophecy 700 years before Jesus' birth. And the Jewish leaders could not claim ignorance to this fact. Remember the story when the wise men came? They came to worship the king of the Jews. And when they got to Jerusalem, they asked, where is it that we must go to worship the king of the Jews? And this kind of ticked off Herod, but in his political correctness, he he said, To the religious leaders, where would these guys be going if they're going to go worship this new king of the Jews, the Messiah? And what did they do? The religious leaders, they quoted the prophet Micah to them. They knew exactly. And it's so sad when I look in Scripture and we see no indication whatsoever that anybody went to look. They didn't go to look. In our culture today, in our world today, the same type of thing happened. God can transform a life. He can transform the lives of all of you in here. He's transformed us so dramatically. And we could share a testimony of what God did in our life, and even our closest family members might just turn their nose up and go, what are you talking about? So you got your act together. About time. The evidence. In the last prophecy, and all of those are focused on the birth, and I picked an eighth one just so I'd have eight. And you'll know why in just a minute if you remember the illustration that's a favorite of mine. But the one that I picked, the eighth one is this. It has to do with after the birth of Christ. And it's another Old Testament prophecy from the book of Hosea. And in the book of Hosea, it says, Out of Egypt I will send my son. Out of Egypt. Wait a minute. It was Jesus of Galilee. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus born in Bethlehem. I don't understand. Where'd this Egypt thing come in? Remember the story? After Herod found out where Jesus might have been born, Bethlehem, what did he decide to do? Kill all the babies under two years of age, all the little boys. Kill them all. And Joseph was warned in the night by an angel. Flee to Egypt. And out of Egypt I will call my son. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled by one person. Jesus, born of a woman, descendant of Abraham, tribe of Judah, descendant of David, announced by John the Baptist, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt. Did this all happen or didn't it? We stake our very life on saying, yes, we believe it all happened. But what 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 if I just said, yeah, right, it just happened by chance. I mean, I'm stretching it a little bit, aren't I? It just happened by chance. People believe things like that happened by chance. One of my favorite illustrations that a number of you have seen me use before, but I just love it, a mathematician named Peter Stoner, a professor, he took 12 different, of his 12 different classes of his mathematics students. Over 600 students were involved, and they, they decided to calculate the odds of eight prophecies in the Old Testament coming true. Just eight. Not 61 direct prophecies, not 300, just eight. And they came up with the odds. You wouldn't want these odds in Vegas or anywhere else. The odds of this happening by chance that any one individual could fulfill these odds. And we need to remember this was this was six different guys prophesying over approximately 1700 years not forgetting about God in the garden and they say it's 1 times 10 to the 17th power what that means is the odds are 1 times that number 1 in 100 quadrillion you impressed i knew that i had to look it up <laughs> I made it to trillion, but then I was lost. One in 100 quad trillion that it could be happened by chance with one individual. Just eight prophecies. I can't even, how many of you can fathom that number in your head? Do you get a picture right away of what that looks like? No, this is my favorite illustration. If you took the entire state of Texas, how many of you heard this before? It's just great. If you've been here before, you should have heard it from me. If you took the entire state of Texas and you uncovered the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, the entire state of Texas would be covered in silver dollars two feet high. If you took one silver dollar, put a red X on it, and buried it out there somewhere amongst all of those silver dollars, those 100 quadrillion silver dollars, and then you took somebody as good as they are, we'll let them take Elias and they blindfold Elias, and they say, here's the deal. We're going to let you be God. All you've got to do is this. You can walk as far as you want for as long as you want. You're blindfolded, and you get to pick up one silver dollar. And the odds of that silver dollar having the red X on it, that is one in 100 quadrillion. Those are the odds that it would take. That's the likelihood, by chance, that anybody else could fulfill eight prophecies. And there's 61 direct prophecies fulfilled, every single one by Christ. Why do I stress this? For a number of reasons. One, we need to know that our faith is founded in something that is true. You know what? You can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt anything historical. You can't. And people love to throw that in your face. Can you prove it? What do you say to them? You know what I say? I'm just kind of a sarcastic smart aleck sometimes. I say, can you prove to me you brushed your teeth this morning because it doesn't smell like it? (laughs) Because you can't prove anything from the historical. You can't go back in time. You can't create everything exactly as it was. Our whole justice system, our whole legal system is based on something else. It's called on the preponderance of the evidence. Can we prove it beyond reasonable doubt? I believe with all my heart that Jesus has been proven over and over and over. Historically, scientifically, archaeologically, with the historical writings, but by the prophets and the prophecies of the Word of God. Beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is who He says He is. He is God in the flesh and He invaded earth over 2,000 years ago. And He died for your sins and my sins. He atoned for all of that. The songs we sang this morning about who he is and his righteousness and his blood and removing shame and guilt and condemnation that's all been taken care of at the cross. And so we can live in victory knowing we are children of God. That's who we are. So the question always is this. What are you going to do with this Jesus born in Bethlehem? You believe he is who he says he is? Or do you think somehow or other somebody just got lucky? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the the confidence we can have in your word. God, that you are not afraid of us challenging you with honest questions as long as we are seekers of truth. God, that your answers are there for us. That our faith is founded on Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done and who he forever will be. Father, I pray for this Christmas season, That we have opportunities to share about the real Jesus, the real Christ, the real meaning of Christmas, and that you would be preparing hearts ahead of time, that what we would share in love would be received by hearts that are hungry and looking. Father, I thank you and praise you for your word that we can trust, that we have a foundation no matter how badly the foundations of this earth may be shaken, your word will never be shaken. And that's who we believe is our Heavenly Father. So I pray, God, for your word to become so real in our lives that no matter what the culture around us says, we will not be shaken. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you for sharing communion with brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for Roger and Sonia, God, and their 60 years of marriage. thank you and praise you for that. And I pray, God, that you will watch over us as we go our different directions today. I pray for our our meeting that will follow the service, Lord. I pray that everything we do brings glory and honor to you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.